Thank you for the invitation. It's really great to be here. We've had a, a wonderful lunch cooked by Josh and Ellie. So I'm a bit sleepy, so I hope I wake up as I go along. But during that lunch, I was told with some sort of uh, degree of horror that I was going to be the oldest ever person to have spoken a G2. <laughs> and Josh said, even older than Christian. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I've got your mantle now, Christian. Uh, but I, I'm really thrilled to be here. And until recently, I have been a, uh, a parish vicar. I was a vicar in Liverpool Diocese. So I've not really had the opportunity to come on Sunday. So this is the first time I've been able to come and see G2. I, but I've heard so much about this uh, creative and exciting new church here in York. And I've got to say that it's a, a double privilege, because how often does a son trust his dad to come and speak at his own church? Josh has got to have a lot of trust in me, I think, because I could do something incredibly embarrassing, couldn't I? I could do a bit of dad dancing. I'm really getting cringy. Or I could do what all parents do and tell horrible stories about when he was little. But I'm a good dad, I'm a kind dad. So the only thing I'll do is do what all parents do and show you some cringeworthy photographs. Just growing up. Or as I'm told, I've got to call him listening to his sermons on podcasts. Got to call him not Josh, but the handsome young philosopher. And what what many of you probably don't know about the handsome young philosopher, and I don't know whether you know this, Ellie, is that he's always had a thing about dressing up. So if we could have our first picture. This is uh, the handsome young philosopher. That's him in the Batman costume. But uh, we were always into sort of uh, bringing our children up right with sort of uh, uh, gender equality and all that sort of stuff. So the next photograph... <laughs> will show you what I mean. But I hope the real reason Josh has invited me to share with you this afternoon is because he knows I'm absolutely passionate about mission and building missionary, life-changing, community-transforming churches. That is what I am passionate about. And the question which uh, I've been asked to address this afternoon, at the heart of today's topic, is how can G2 remain a vibrant, life-giving, missionary church which makes disciples of Jesus and transforms York for God's kingdom? How can you continue to grow and be a church like that? And one of my favourite quotes, I think, is from uh, Bill Hybels. Many of you will have heard of him. He's uh, the leader of a big church in America, Willow Creek Church. And he says that the local church is the hope of the world. It's an astonishing claim. He says, the local church, trans transfer it to your context, for this community, for this city, you, the local church is the hope of the world. Well, Bible says that, you know, Jesus did not have a plan B. The only hope, the only future for our world is the church which Jesus left and commissioned. 
The second quote that I came across uh, in uh, reading round this topic this afternoon was from uh, Tim Keller in his uh, Centre Church book. And Tim Keller says something similar, but it's, it's different. He says that the job of the church is to make disciples who will change the world. It's slightly different. So just for 30 seconds, a minute maybe, um, buzz amongst yourselves about which of those two quotes you like best and why. Which of those two do you like best and why? Just have a quick buzz about that. Anybody feel strongly that they prefer one or the other? Be brave, stick your hand up if you do, and tell me why. Um, Christian and I would say for Tim Keller's, um, just because it's more active, less passive, and it's actually like a commission. Yeah. Thank you. Anyone else? Uh, yeah, I was just saying the opposite. Uh, I say I prefer Bill Hyde because um, the second one implies that our only job disciples, um, rather than to, uh, you know, do all things that Jesus would do. So I feel like the church's job is to be Christ in the world, um, and organically part of that is to make disciples, um, and that is the hope of the world. Thank you. One more? Everyone on either side, it's balanced, anybody else feel strongly? Yes? No. Uh, the first one sounds really scary. <laughs> I'm sure it's true, but it's terrifying. I'm going to go for the second one. <laughs> I love that answer because it's true. It is terrifying that the future of the world depends on us. But it is true. That's the way Jesus planned it, which gives us a great sense of responsibility. But also, what a privilege, eh? What a privilege. It's been given to us. Let's have a look at our handsome young philosopher again. <laughs> this is Josh in action man mode. And before we go any further, we're going to have the reading on which I based uh, uh, what I want to say today from Acts 1. So uh, I think that's going to read that for us. I Apologies. I left the Bible that I had it marked on on another table. So, Acts 1, verses 8 and 9. But you will, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes in you, and you will be my witness in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. Thank you. And I think... That verse from uh, Acts 1 verse 8 is probably my favourite verse in the entire Bible. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you to be my witnesses. And you will be my witnesses from here to the ends of the earth. It is an extraordinary scripture. And the disciples, when they heard that, must have been so elated. You know, the power... <laughs> that Jesus is talking about, the power of the Holy Spirit, Paul says in Ephesians 1, doesn't he? That that is the same power which raised Jesus from the dead. That same power you will receive 
to equip you. So in other words, you will have everything you need to equip you to be my witnesses where you are now to the ends of the earth. And that is all that you need. They must have been on the ceiling until he gets to the next bit, verse 9. Because in verse 9 it says, after Jesus said that, he was taken up before their eyes and a cloud hid them from their sight. So from the ceiling down to earth with a bump. A bit more like my friend at the back there thinking, blimey, this sounds exciting, but what, me? Call me to do this? You called us to do this? Jesus is telling them that they have everything they need to build his church. So he's saying to him, so get on with it. Bye. I'm off now. Off you go. That's effectively it. And so in the very next verse, it's not surprising that we see the first thing they do after verse 9 is it says they hurry back to Jerusalem and they go back into hiding again into an upstairs room and they start praying. And I suspect it's those sort of, my God, 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 help, help, help type prayers. Because the reality just seems extraordinary. But the point is, Jesus had complete and utter faith in them to build his church. They didn't need him to be with them physically because they had everything they needed inside them. He had completely equipped them. And the point is, so do we. It's really, really important to remember that. So do we. It's inside us. Jesus gave them the knowledge that they needed. We have that from his teaching, from the word of God. He gave them his values, how he wanted them to live. We have that from uh, the word of God and from the Bible. And above all, he gave them his Holy Spirit to give them the power they needed to fulfill the task he called them to do. And it was all inside them. You know, he didn't give them a master plan. He didn't give them a uh, diagram or any instructions about how to go and build my church, you know, like you get from uh, Ikea with the, uh, you know, this is how to go and build a, a flat-packed church with a little, uh, a little Allen key and a set of instructions. Instead, he gave them a vision and he gave them his values and he gave them his Holy Spirit and he said, build my church here to the ends of the earth. That's all you need. That's all you need if you believe in Jesus. Have we got the next photo of Josh? <laughs> Mighty Josh. <laughs> but I think what we can conclude from these, these uh, verses is that Jesus wasn't interested in building his church as an institution. He wanted his church to be a value-driven movement. 
He wanted it to be something that was flexible and dynamic so that it could actually move from here to everywhere and anywhere. And to do that, it could only do that if it was value-driven, if it was inside us, if it was wherever the Holy Spirit calls us to be. And so the question Tim Keller asks is, if that's the case, why does the church need institution? Why does it need structure? You know, why does it need people like me, paid vicars or church leaders? Why does it need leadership teams? Why does it need buildings? Why does it need, you know, church wardens in some places and dioceses and all that sort of stuff? And he answers his own question. Tim Keller says that any movement that doesn't develop structure and institution will simply die out. And he takes us through history and shows the case, shows us case by case where that's happened. That without some sort of structure and institution, those values die out. They either lose their essential core values and wither and die out altogether, or those values get so distorted that they look nothing like they were supposed to do when they were originally set out. And that's difficult, I think, for modern people to grasp, because for most of us, institutions now are seen as bad things. We don't like institutions. Institutions tend to be the things that tell us how to behave or try and control us or somehow inhibit our freedom of choice. And so we've started to see institutions as negative things. And Josh uh, touched on this a few weeks ago when he was talking about the gospel, the need to get the balance right between uh, relativism, you know, freedom of choice, anything goes, and absolute structure and dogmatism. He was saying, Kellen says it needs to be a balance in the middle. And so it is with church structure. There needs to be a balance because institution, when it's right, brings uh, stability, brings longevity, allows things to last. It also allows us to do things incredibly efficiently. It allows us to work out the best way to disciple people or to deliver church programs and projects, whatever it might might choose to be. It is a good thing. But the danger of institutions is when they become institutionalised, rigid and fixed, and no longer able to deliver their core purpose because the world around them has changed and they're no longer relevant. You know, in my new job, I visit lots of churches that are still singing the same songs they were singing 50 years ago, still doing the same things they were doing 50 years ago when those churches were full and overflowing and reaching people because their churches were the centre of their communities and they were the only place where people could go to get entertainment. It's the only place where young men and women went to meet someone of the opposite sex or their future husband or wife. And so they were the centre of things and they're still doing the same old things. And then they're asking the questions, well, why is it not working anymore? And those churches are getting older and older and older and smaller and smaller and smaller.
because they've become institutionalised. What I'm saying is, the key part of any church is its values. It is not the structure. The structure, if you like, is just the envelope those values are wrapped in. You know, I also visit churches that have gone the other way, that they've worked out how to get the envelope right, how to get the envelope right to connect with the people they're trying to connect with, be it young people or old people or whatever. You know, they've got the culturally relevant songs, they've got the uh, social media stuff right, they're meeting in schools or in cafes or around tables or in cinemas, and they're doing it with the intention to connect with people they're trying to reach, but they have watered their values down so much that there's virtually nothing Christ-centred or cross-shaped in those churches at all. They have become culturally relevant social clubs. York is full of culturally relevant social clubs. So we need to get the balance right. We need the wisdom of a super Josh. Let's have super Josh. (laughs) He's the one on the left, by the way. That's his uh, brother on the right. No, we don't. We don't need the values... (laughs) We don't need the rescue from Super Josh. What we need is the wisdom of Jesus. We need churches that are centred on Jesus' vision and Jesus' values and are dependent on the Holy Spirit to guide them. And, uh, you know, my job now in Sheffield is to try and work with churches to try and get this right. Yes, to work with churches to get the package right, but at the heart of that package, to make sure the values are right. And I would suggest that that's also what you need to be doing here in G2. And so, um, you know, in my last church, before I'm doing my current job, I was vicar in a church uh, uh, in Liverpool Diocese for eight years called St Mark's. We call that the Lake and River Church. What we had done there is to build a a, a parish church, uh, take everything that was good about a a renewed, vibrant parish church, but then we had built around that 14 other churches, some of which looked a bit like this, which were all connected together. And those churches were there to connect with people who wouldn't go into a traditional parish church setting. The question was, all these were part of St. Mark's Church, Lake and River Church. Question was, how do you know you're part of it? What is it that if you go to a a cafe-based church, or if you go to a church that's based around walking groups, which we had, or based in a school, or based around craft groups, or based around social outreach projects, what is it that made those churches essentially part of St. Mark's Church? What is it that they had in common? And the question is... The values, the values, wherever you were in that church, whatever the package looked like, the values were the same. And I think your challenge here as a church is to keep on listening to your culture and context and to keep on being prepared to reimagine the package 
Wouldn't it be a great travesty if in 10 years, 20 years' time, someone came back and found you lot 10 or 20 years older hanging on to this model of delivering the church? And he sat, I hadn't actually drawn anybody knew in at all. I hadn't drawn any disciples of Jesus at all. You would have been hanging on to the envelope without engaging with the central core values. And I'm coming into land now, but I just want to say one more thing before I finish about values, why this is really important. Because a value, if you think about it, a value is something that people regard as being sufficiently important to give either their time to, or their energy to, or their money to, so if you value something, you commit to it. If you really, really value it, you know, you're even prepared to give your life for it. That's what a sense of being called is, a sense of vocation. That's what Jesus did. He gave his life for it. And that is something that determines, makes a difference in the way we live our lives. And we used to think in the church for many years that discipleship wasn't about values at all. Discipleship, if we can never have our next slide, was about teaching people what to believe. So if you teach people what to believe, you grow disciples and you teach them the Bible and you teach them all Jesus' teachings, then that will affect the way they live their lives. It will affect their behaviour. But actually, that's not true. If you think about it, you can believe in all sorts of things. But it doesn't mean to say it's necessarily going to impact how you behave. So, you know, I can um, believe uh, with my head that it's wrong to commit adultery. But if I don't value my wife, and I don't value our relationship, and I don't value Jesus' teaching on this, then it's not going to stop me going off and committing adultery. And what we understand much better now, if you look at the next slide, is that of course teaching people what to believe is important, but those beliefs have to become values. It has to be something people are prepared to commit to. And that is what will affect their behaviour. There was a really, really scary... Um, a sort of surveyed them recently about um, uh, uh, children of Christian parents who no longer go to church. Uh, and they asked um, very committed Christians what the top priorities were for their children. And all the things on those top priorities were things like, you know, good schools, the right friends, right opportunities, blah, blah, blah. And, and actually growing up with a relationship with Jesus was really, really very low on the list of those priorities. And so then when they started to find out that those children no longer connected with any churches or no longer uh, wanted to grow up as disciples of Jesus, it's obvious why. Because they believed it was important, but they didn't value it enough to make it part of the life of those children. And so I think the questions I want to leave, leave you with uh, this afternoon is, are you living out as a church the values of you too? Do you know what the values are? 
Because this is not about getting the package right. Getting the package right will not make a life-transforming, city-transforming church. But if you get the values right, and you live out those values in the whole of your life, not just the churchy bits, not just the stuff you do on Sunday, not when you go to your small groups, not when you go to your projects, but you live it out in the workplace, at university, in school, wherever you are, that is what will transform uh, our world and our communities. And so, you know, I looked on your website and said, well, uh, to help me, what is the vision and values of this church and your vision? The important thing about vision and values is, first of all, they have to be biblical and they have to be Jesus-centred. Are your vision and values biblical and, and Jesus-centred? Well, I think they are. To help people discover and follow Jesus Christ. That's pretty biblical and Jesus-centred, isn't it? And then after that, you didn't call them values, and they may not be your only values, but uh, this is what they look like to me. He said, we exist too. That's quite a strong value statement. Worship God, make disciples, build friendships, help people in need, equip leaders. Are they biblical? Well, yeah, I think they are. Are they Jesus-centred? Well, you know, I think they are. Worshipping God, making disciples, building friendships, helping people in need, equipping leaders. Jesus spent a lot of his time doing that. And so I want to leave you with two questions for you to talk about just for a few minutes on your tables. Before I do that, we've got to have a couple more Josh pictures, haven't we? So I think that's my favourite. But we'll leave him with a bit of dignity. Where's the next one? <laughs> the handsome young philosopher returns. For the questions to leave you with, to talk about for a couple of minutes. First of all, how are the values of this church which you come to worked out in your life? Not just when you're doing church-based activities. What do they look like for the rest of the week? And secondly, is there anything missing from the values? You know, if you were going to plant another G2 and another G2 and another G2 or start looking at different ways of this Jesus movement spreading, is there anything you'd add to the existing values to make the DNA the same and central wherever you're going? So just chat about those questions for a couple of minutes and then Gavin O'Frey will call you back together. <laughs>